Hey everybody, it is Chris here from the Running Rogue Podcast. We're coming to you now with episode number two. We've got Steve here, like last time, and we have a very special guest today that we're going to be interviewing as the main part of our show, which is Allison Maxis. She is a, a Rogue employee, head of Rogue Expeditions for us, and also an elite level athlete. So we're going to talk a little bit about her journey, both as, a, as an athlete and also her career journey which I think is going to be interesting. Welcome, Allison. Thank you. You're our first guest. Glad to be here. On the second episode. Uh, So first of all, I wanted to thank everybody for listening to our first episode. We had over 700 folks download it and listen, which is is huge. So thank you very much for that great response. I think we've set the bar high, Steve, for these. So now we've got to back it up. And Allison, no pressure on that. Uh, Like last time, we'll structure the show similarly. We'll talk about a, a current topic and or some related news and then today our main topic will be interviewing Allison we'll learn from her journey as a runner and as a uh, the head of Rogue Expeditions and then we will finish it off with a training tip we've got a kind of a different spin this week on the training tip so look forward to that but first current topic and I know Steve you know we've bantered on this before but for those that have been paying attention a couple weeks ago for for the for the running nerds out there the McLaren report part two was released about doping in Russia and so there's been some recent in the past year in addition to the McLaren report that came in two parts there's been lots of attention on doping in track and field doping across Olympic all Olympic sports Russia was actually banned from track and field for the Olympics here in 2016, and and they were banned completely from the Paralympics because of some of the findings that have come out with the McLaren report. So I wanted to talk to you about your perspective on doping in sport, doping and running, and for the fan, is it is it how 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 should they not be completely jaded on the state of the sport? Because it does seem a little bit depressing when you look at some of the extent of it. Uh, but what's your take? You know, I think it's a really difficult subject to bring up because everyone wants to just assume that everybody's clean. And we have, in this in this country at least, this sort of attitude that you're innocent until proven guilty. And I've always taken the approach from looking at athletes that if they hadn't gotten busted, then they're not on drugs. I know that's facile and naive, but I don't know how you else can, you can look at it. Though over the last few years, I've sort of become jaded a little bit myself, having seen a uh, you know, in my opinion, McLuffy in the 1500 in 2012, his his acceleration and the way he blew up the entire field in that race just sort of made me kind of turn my head, made me look at uh, Paula's records in the Paula's record in the marathon a little bit differently. And I was talking to some of my athletes over the last year who are new runners who are just getting at this and, you know, you know, Paula's a huge hero to them and they don't want to think about her in any other way than that she's clean. Um, and I sort of was a little jaded and said some things that really in, in really impressed them um, and made them think, wow, well, maybe everybody's on dope, you know. And I thought, wow, it's terrible for me to have this jaded attitude and jaded approach and maybe impact negatively people's perception of our sport. So I see both sides of it. But at the end of the day, if we don't have clear testing models and if we don't have a biological type passport that says clearly and definitively that people are going to get tested, tested consistently and that those tests are going to be checked, then it's almost like we should just let everybody do whatever they want, you know? Right. Um, 
it's it's just a really really hard thing to determine um especially with what we hear coming out of the mclaren report and that basically a, a, a state sponsor it's been state sponsored um and no one can be clean in russia basically you couldn't compete clean right it's just disheartening incredibly disheartening it is and i think the extent of it too so it's not just that the testing wasn't working because in Sochi they were passing urine samples through a hole in the wall in order to replace the dirty samples with clean ones. So so Russia at that level through their labs was was violating all kinds of normal protocols. But also some of the evidence now shows that from things like the ARD documentary from coming out of Germany and some other whistleblowers from Russia that the IAAF and to some extent the World Anti-Doping Administration have been complicit in, uh, in covering up positive t- samples. So not just are, you know, the, the states that are trying to govern this corrupt, but also the governing bodies that are trying to protect all athletes across the world are potentially implicated in helping them. And that's the part where you think, gosh, like, what's the point, right? And... If I were an athlete at competing at that level, which I'm not even close, it would make me question, you know, my desire to compete at all. Or it might make me say, well, shoot, if everybody else is doing it, why not do it too? Uh, so it's it's tough. The One of the things that it's made me recognize and appreciate more than perhaps I did before, because I've always been a fan of the top level of the sport, but it also makes me follow and appreciate the journey of that sub-elite level athlete of the athletes that I coach that are competing just to conquer their own goals. It's made me really appreciate those levels of performances, even though they're not at the top of the top, you know, they're real and they're just as legitimate in a lot of ways as what you might be seeing in an Olympic final. Well, how do you feel about football? I mean, the well, NFL, American does anybody football? think that anybody in American football is clean? I mean, there's no expectation that they are. Right. Everyone just assumes, okay, I'm just going to watch bodies flying and people getting smacked into each other. And they want, and so maybe we should be looking at track and field and, and marathoning the same way. I mean, I'm not saying let's be ostriches and put our head in the sand, but I mean, we have a beautiful sport. There's nothing like people standing on a starting line and racing to a finish line to see who the best is for the day. I... I'm just sort of getting a little bit more back to the old way I was and say, you know, there's just a dirt in the ground, start line, finish line, and let us all have fun. And whatever comes out in the news comes out in the news, you know, uh, because I don't want to continue to that. The only other option is just to be depressed. And so I'd rather <laughs> just continue to watch the sport and say, it's a great sport, you know? Yeah. So, you, you make a good point because I do think that where there's money to be made in sport, people are cheating the system. And, and then in the NFL, there's way more money involved than there might be in on a track at stake. So, and the system you, is complicit, right? And knows it. You have and to just believe, says yeah. and just says, we're gonna bust you for smoking a little weed. What? <laughs> and then, but we're gonna we're gonna let you it's just fine to take whatever performance enhancing drugs you we need to take. Like, that's just crazy. Yeah, the NFL only. I think it was eighteen. You months can run maybe. someone into the ground in your car and kill them. <laughs> Or or smack a woman in a on a on, in a uh, elevator, but no, we can't have you do it. We can't, right. we, you know. It's it, it's just the le- that level is just it's just a different thing to me. It's sport is entertainment. It really is entertainment, and maybe we should look at it that way. So I'll turn this to you, Allison, and we'll get 
further into talking with you in a bit, but mm-hmm. from, from an athlete's perspective who's competed in Olympic trials, Olympic marathon trials, how do you think about it? Are you completely jaded? Um, I feel like over the past year or so, more so, um, I used to not worry about it so much because it felt like it was something happening on a level beyond where I am or where I'll ever be. Um, but then I started to realize that maybe I feel like I'll never be on that level because I can't compete in you that world you unless I were doping and getting or open to that, you know, kind of a system. Um, so when I look at it that way, that's super frustrating because I think, you know, I would never really consider truly making it a professional career because it seems like a whole different world than what, you know, right. what I'm in. Um, yeah, I think it's it's very hard not to be jaded. Um, but I also know you tend to only read the bad things and good things don't get out there as much. So um, I try to, I guess I look around a lot more at what's around me and my immediate experience in which I see a lot of people that work really hard and, you know, may not be top in the world. But yeah, that's a, that's a tough thing. It's Um, a house of mirrors, right? So if you look at, okay, I'm going to be a professional athlete and I'm going to be clean and I'm going to assume everyone else is, but you turn, you see somebody you know, some you hear somebody isn't, mm-hmm. then you have to look at every single person in that room and saying, are they or are they not? So it's, you can't trust not only the people you're competing, you can't trust the system, you can't trust the people you're competing against, right. which which then makes me just say, well, throw it all, throw the, throw it all away and just say, it's just a race. One right. spot to another. It's easy for me to say I'm way past my competitive running career <laughs> and I'm just a fan at this point um, yeah. and a coach. Um, but when I think about it from the time I, if I, the time I was coaching elite athletes, if I thought I would not, as a coach, I would not be as frustrated because to me, I just say, Hey, you're just trying to run the best race that you possibly can yourself. And you've decided not to, not to compete illegally. You're still racing yourself. And I think that only the people going first, second or third in the Olympic games or at the world championships are in that position of, of it really being hugely impactful yeah so um i don't know here i am talking out of both sides of my mouth (laughs) the other thing i would say as a fan is that if you truly follow the sport one i think you need to be eyes wide open you need to be educated on what's going on so watch the ard documentaries there's two of them read the details on the mclaren report follow some of the the news coming out of places like kenya and ethiopia about potential doping there and you start to see some telltale signs of those types of things happening. And even though you can never really know which athletes are clean, no one can. I do think you start to pick up on markers of clean athletes. The ones that are vocal about anti-doping that don't have these out of this world performances where they're suddenly you know, going from 10th to first, or maybe they only show up a few times a year and have these crazy performances like McFlukey every four years, McFlukey somehow is at the front of the Olympic final and like, wait a minute, that's not right. He doesn't have the track record in between to justify those performances. So you can start to see these markers. And I do think there's a lot of hope, especially in American distance running, of clean athletes that are doing great things. I look at Emma Coburn. I look at Jenny Simpson. I look at Meb mm-hmm. is another one. And certainly we can't know for sure that those are clean athletes, but the way they talk, the way they carry themselves, the way their progressions have happened. Evan Jager's another one. You, you start to believe in them, and then they have performances competing against potentially dope athletes. And for me, it makes those performances even more meaningful when they can medal mm-hmm. against all odds, including you know competing against dirty athletes. So I do think there's hope to be had out there, and I would just encourage people to be educated about what's going on so they can 
truly face it with eyes wide open and, and not be naive at all. But then also, as I said, look to those athletes that aren't competing at the highest level and find inspiration. And I think Allison is a good example of that as someone in our community here at Rogue that is embodying those principles of working hard and seeing big results as a result. So with that, we'll transition to talking about you, Allison. Thanks for being our first guest to interview. We're excited. Uh, I'll give a quick background and then I'll have you give a little bit more. But for those that aren't in our community, Allison is an employee of ours. She heads up Rogue Expeditions, which is our running adventure travel company, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a second. And also is an elite level athlete. She's competed in two marathon Olympic trials in 2012 in Houston and 2016 in LA. And so while not competing at the front you know, of every race, she's a heck of an athlete and a great runner and an even better person. So welcome, Allison. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Before we dive into more questions, just give us a quick background. Who is Allison Maxis? The the two sentence version. Oh gosh, um, <laughs> I don't know how to put myself into two sentences. I thought you were going to say that part. <laughs> um, I guess in born and raised in Texas. Know. Yes, born and raised in Texas. Um, Began running in high school. I went to school out in Tampa, Florida. Um, still not sure how I ended up there, but I went there. Uh, moved to Austin right after that, so I've been here for about 10 years. Um, and started traveling at some point right after college, and that's sort of infiltrated my entire life along with running and sort of shaped what I'm doing today. Yeah, so so how did you find Rogue? I found Rogue is a very roundabout way. Um, back in 2006, I was going to move to Austin from Tampa, um, decided I would find a running group before I looked for a job. Um, it was kind of a last minute move. Um, so all I knew of in Austin was Rentex at that point. And so I looked it up on the internet. Somehow I found your Steve's email address um, that he coached a performance group. So I emailed him probably a two page email with my background and you know, all these things I had done. And I wasn't really planning to run competitively. I just wanted to have a group to train with, run local races. Um, so I kind of poured my entire life into this email. And about two weeks later, I got a two-word response from Steve that said, or three words, that talked to Carmen. <laughs> um, so anyway, I was directed Typical to, uh, yeah, I think at that point you were just moving over to UT and out of Rogue. Yeah. Um, so I ended up with Carmen Truncoso, who luckily was very responsive. Um, was coached by her for a few months, ended up getting um, pretty injured after I'd been in Austin for a few months, um, was out for a year, ended up moving to Thailand, kind of had this long two-year hiatus from running, um, came back to Austin, um, was healthy, reached out to Carmen about training, and she asked me what kind of work I was looking for, and I was like, I don't know, but I cannot go back to an office, like I've been free for the last year. I've got to do something. And I was like, I kind of want to get into the running scene. Like, I wonder if Rogue would let me volunteer coach or something. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I just want to like be involved somehow. So she told me Ruth needed some help. I didn't know who Ruth was, but I said, <laughs> okay. And so she told me to go over to Rogue Running and just ask for Ruth. So I went there and I think I spent maybe 10 minutes there. I mentioned I was a graphic designer and I liked early mornings and suddenly I had a job. Um, I didn't quite know what that job was. Those were but, the two uh, requirements. Those were the two requirements. Um, so yeah, so I started working part-time, eventually became full-time, and then Team Rogue Elite started and sort of my post-collegiate career started at that point. And started again. Yeah. So. 
So yeah, just for context, Allison has done everything at Rogue. She's been our marketing person, graphic designer. She's done web design. She's helped. Coach. Us, she's coached. She's helped us administratively from a training standpoint. She's done maps, maps for us for lots a very maps, long time. Lots of maps. She's created more running maps than maybe anyone in the history of this planet. And so, and now, of course, heads up Rogue Expeditions while continuing to help us on the marketing side. So she's done it all. And has been awesome in that. So let's go. Let's go back to your running career to so talk about. You mentioned you started running earlier. You ran at Tampa, which is Division Three. Is that right? Uh, two. Two Division Two cross country. Mm-hmm. How did you get into running, and what's what's your connection to it? Um, I actually grew up playing basketball from second grade on. That was what I did with my life. Um, and then when I was a sophomore in high school, I had a good friend who was a basketball teammate who also ran cross country. And she would always bug me about coming out for the team, trying it out. Cause I'd always been a fast runner. Like you do your sprints and punishment drills and all that in basketball. I was always fast. Um, I really didn't want to do it, but she wouldn't leave me alone. So I agreed to go out one day and try it out. So I went to one practice. Um, at that age, I was very shy and not really able to speak up. So I went to this one practice and the coaches said, oh, we'll see you tomorrow. And I didn't really feel like I could say, oh, I'm not serious about this. So I decided I'd come for the week and then I just wouldn't show up again. So next thing I know, they told me they entered me into the race on Saturday. Um, and I was like, well, I can't really tell them. All you within know, that I'm week commitment. Yes, with all this within <laughs> one week. So I went to the race, um, two mile cross country race, high school, Texas high school cross country. Um, I think it was a 300 person race and I finished 10th and was probably two minutes ahead of my next teammate. And um, it's kind of like, wow, I don't know what just happened, but that was kind of fun. Um, so, of course, by then the coaches are like, OK, you're going to do this and this and this. Um, I still wasn't sold on it, um, but I was like, well, maybe I'll come for one more week and then I'll tell them I'm not serious about this. So I kept coming, kept coming and um, quickly realized I was a, a lot better at running than basketball and nobody yelled at me, which I really liked. Um, <laughs> it's a much more positive <laughs> environment. Um, so that kind of got me hooked. But. You know, I was very type A, very much a perfectionist, and I'd get so nervous before racing. I mean, from Thursday night on, I'd be in tears, just terrified of these races um, because I thought I had all this pressure on me to win all the time, which, you know, because people would say, oh, we know you're going to win, this and that. So I really had no interest in running in college. I just wanted to be a normal college kid, maybe run for fun. Um, but I, I had never traveled at that age, but I think I had that in me. And I had the opportunity to visit a school in Tampa um, somewhere before my senior year and happened to talk to the coach and found out they had cross country, but no track. And I hated track. So (laughs) I was like, well, maybe I could be convinced to do this and um, stayed in touch with him and eventually agreed to go run there mainly as a way to get out of Texas. Um, I just wanted to try something new. Um, And it, I mean, I don't know what I would have done had I not run in college. That was an instant family, amazing experience. Um, But even leaving school, I was convinced I didn't want to run competitively after that because <laughs> it was too stressful. So, but here I am, you know. There are rumors <laughs> from you actually that your first few years or maybe first a year in college, you were really big on the party scene and so <laughs> you were maybe we all were. <laughs> contributing, contributing a little less to your running emphasis because you, you know, I think there was a nickname even for you. <laughs> well, um, that's not public. Um, <laughs> but, but, but so... Clearly, you, you kind of wavered maybe in your love for the sport at that time or at least had other priorities. So how did you stay with it? Um, honestly, all the people I was drinking with were teammates. So 
it was just it was Tampa, Florida. It was I mean, I think it was Bond, college, but Bonnie. it was. Yeah, um, we were D2. So the, the pressure level was a bit less um, than D1. Um, I've I've always taken on too much. And at that age, I could take on even more. And so, I mean, as a freshman in college, I was working two jobs, taking honors classes, running competitively and had a full social life. Um, I think a lot of it was just youth and maybe we could have been better and gone further had we um, taken a little better care of ourselves. But I think I was 17 when I moved there. I was young. You were just all in for everything. Um, that said, I did make huge improvements my sophomore year after I toned it down <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so I learned how to sleep. <laughs> you competed at quite a high level there too, right? Eventually. Um, my first year, I actually I was fifth on the team, I think, um, which I loved because I was it took all the pressure off. Like I was important enough to be on the travel team, but no one was looking at me. And I really liked that for a few months. And then I got really annoyed by it and Hmm. wanted to be in the front. And um, honestly, I mean, I think my 5K PR my freshman year of college was 1920 something. I mean, I showed up to my first race in giant stability shoes and had no (laughs) idea what a racing shoe was or anything. Um, But that summer between um, freshman and sophomore year, I took it from running 40 miles a week up to 70. Not, I didn't really plan it. It just kind of happened. I was running with a friend and mileage went up and up and showed up my first race my sophomore year and ran like an 1810. So I dropped almost a minute and a half just running mileage. And that's where I kind of learned that I'm better at distance. And um, yeah, I got better and better from there. So I I was at nationals every year and it was usually top 10 there in the D2 world. But uh, we raced D1 schools throughout the season. And again, I was top three every race. So um, so was, that transition from uh, being a, a high-level college runner and then, and then sort of, you know, spending some time traveling, doing some other things, mm-hmm. and then coming back to, uh, to running again. Talk a little bit about that transition and the challenges of being in a post-collegiate system, um, maybe the challenges of a draconian coach and <laughs> with... with with the who, who maybe yelled a little bit too much. Uh, I'm just I'm not I'm joking about that. I'm already anyway. yelling. <laughs> um, yeah, you know I never had any true intentions to run post collegiately, not competitively. Um, obviously, I wanted to run, but when I was looking for a coach, like I mentioned before in Austin, I was thinking I'd run local 5Ks, maybe win one, something like that. I had no plans to do anything beyond that. Never crossed my mind I could possibly run on a professional level. Um, and again, it was a few years. I was probably out of school three or four years before I really got into it again. Um, and a lot of that was because I moved back. I was still training with Carmen. And about that time, I guess that was 09 or early 2010, mm-hmm. um, when Steve and Ruth were starting Team Rogue Elite. And you had a bunch of guys off the UT team. And I think I had run some local 5K. I ran like low 17s. It was decent, you know, nothing great, but decent. Um, and I remember Steve, your exact words is you came up to me and said, well, if I don't have any girls, I can't recruit girls. So do you want to be on this team? (laughs) And I was like, I don't think he really wants me on this team, but okay. (laughs) So, so I joined, I think I was a little bit of a charity case. Maybe I don't know that you expected anything out of me, but, um, we kind of jumped right into marathon training there and, um, saw some big improvements and kind of quickly, it was really surprising how quickly the Olympic trials seemed like a reasonable goal and something we went after. And it's just kind of gone from there. And, um, yeah, I'm notorious for denigrating athletes before I start to build them up. So it's a <laughs> it's part of tear them down first and then build them up after I have a tendency to yeah. do that. Part so. of the master plan. Right? I guess, <laughs> I guess. I think my turning point was when I won cap 10 K after 
I could tell you didn't think I was going to do anything. <laughs> you were kind of like, well, just go try your best, see what happens. And Well, I knew for early on you were a marathoner, so it was always trying to find the, the way to get marathon transitioning. You might talk about that a little bit, that mm-hmm. transition from being a sort of 5K, maybe even a 10K runner mm-hmm. to sort of how many athletes have that hard transition. What was that like for you, thinking about that longer distance yeah. and the training necessary for that? Um, it was actually not hard for me because even in high school, I would look forward to cross-country and track season ending so I could go run as far as I wanted every day <laughs> instead of having to do whatever the coach told us to do. Um, so even when I was 15, 16 years old, I'd get super excited about, at that age, you know, 12, 13-mile run was really long. Um, and I was doing that from a young age. I used to run the Dallas Half Marathon every December and I just, I loved it. I looked forward to it. At that time, it was so far. I felt like I could eat whatever <laughs> I wanted for two weeks afterwards because I ran 13 miles. Um, but for me, it was a very natural transition. I don't think I ever really liked the 5K, 6K type stuff. Um, I liked cross country, and that was just all I'd ever known. But I've always taken well to long runs, and I really like the opportunity to go further and further. And, and we pretty quickly went up to 100-mile weeks, and it really, I was running 70-plus in college. So um, I've always taken well to it. I don't think... That wasn't a very scary thing for me. Yeah. You were the lone female marathoner on the team at the time. Yes. But tell me about how you stayed with it mentally. I know some some people get into running because they're good at it. Mm-hmm. In some ways you did. And you had to be talked into staying with it three, right. three times yeah. or getting into it in high school and then staying with it in, in college and then staying back with it with mm-hmm. Steve. So at some point you had to find an internal motivation and related Mm -hmm. to running that kind of sustained you. What was that for you? Um, I think early on when I was part of team rogue elite, um, a lot of it, I just have an inner drive to work hard and succeed in whatever I'm doing. And I was so laser focused on the Olympic trials and just qualifying for it because I was, I think my first attempt was going to be grandma's and ended up getting injured and not racing. And then I went to Houston in 2011, and that was kind of the last chance, or not the last chance, but one of the last chances. Um, and that was my first marathon, and I missed the qualifier by 46 seconds. So then it's laser focused on what can we do next. Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting my qualifier um, that May, which was great. But I think I was just carried along by that. I've got that task. I've got to get this done. Got to get this done. Um, and eventually had the trials happen. And I was, I mean, I was burnt out. I mean, I left the team before the trials, or told you I was leaving the team as soon as the trials was over because that's what I came there to do and it was done and I needed a break and um, I hung around for a little bit but I took a good two years away from racing marathons after that I ran Leadville that was my break Um, (laughs) yeah so I think that um, having those goals kept me really in it but then you know I needed to get away I'm only human Um, I needed time out but it also helped that my job and my whole life really was here at Rogue with this community as well. So it's constant motivation, constant inspiration. You can't sit here and watch 200 people walk out the door to go running and say, well, I don't want to run. You um, also changed teams during that time frame too. Did that have an impact on on the people you were running with, mm-hmm. what you were doing training-wise? Did that affect the, the desire part of it? Um, eventually, yes. At that time, so and I left Team Rogue Elite, I think had just become Rogue AC at that point, because um, I was the only female marathoner. Um, it was a great group of people, but I was training alone 99% of the time. Um, Scotty might have had the same workouts, but we, of course, couldn't run together. So um, I transferred over to Team Rogue, who is, you know, our adult marathoning group. And there's plenty of guys who are within my ability range. Um, and those are more, you know, working 
professionals, people that have to run at 5.30 in the morning, go to work, do all of this. Um, because all that time I was holding a full-time job, though it was here at Rogue, it was still, um, it was hard for me to be on a team of people who worked part-time or didn't work and were so focused on training and recovery. Um, I tend to get resentful, even though I knew I was the one who chose to do what I was doing. Um, so yeah, so I think it was, ultimately it was a very positive change for me to get around just an, an older group of people who were also balancing a lot of things. Um, I, I enjoyed it a lot more. So let's talk about the Olympic marathon trials mm -hmm. for a second. You qualified in 2012 at the Vancouver marathon yep. in May that year. And then you requalified for 2016, ultimately finished top 25 mm -hmm. in LA this year on a really hot day. And talk about those journeys and what you learned from it and how you feel about those outcomes. Um, so 2012, I just mentioned the first just getting there was a huge feat for me because I had never run a marathon before. First one, I got injured. Second one, I missed it by 46 seconds in Houston. Um, and I couldn't have done any more. I think I was more upset about having to run another marathon than I was about not qualifying at the end of that race. Um, so after I did finally qualify in Vancouver, I think that was probably one of the coolest running days of my life, like just checking that box and getting to go. Um, the actual trials in 2012 were amazing. It was, it was just the perfect, everything came together perfectly. It was great weather. Houston put on a great event. Because it was Houston, it had tons of family and friends. The entire rogue community was down there. I felt like I saw people I knew every inch of that course. Um, the energy was amazing. Um, and I PR'd by four minutes there. So it was a really, really good day. It's the only true negative split I've run. It was really, really good day. Um, still one of my coolest race memories ever. Um, 2016 was very different because by that point, you know, I took kind of two years away from marathoning, did some ultra running, did some, I don't know, I just wasn't that serious about it. Um, around 2014, I finally got excited about it again. Um, at that point, I was out of Austin in the summers training alone. And so, you know, Steve wrote a schedule for me and kind of did follow that, but mainly was alone all summer. Um, did not feel like it was very good training just because I had to get myself out the door. I was in a different place every week, um, but I kind of got through it. Uh, went and ran Twin Cities in 2014 and actually PR'd. So my first marathon in two and a half years at that point, um, I ran 239 there. And I was, again, super excited about it, which was great. Um, so that was kind of like boxes checked, but I also went into that really with no question of whether I'd qualify as long as I didn't, you know, we didn't have some unexpected thing happen on race day. So, you know, a PR is always exciting, but it wasn't quite the feeling I had the first time I qualified for the trials. Um, so, yeah, I had some good halves and stuff between there and the trials. And L.A., of course, was famously hot. And I went in with a pretty bad attitude to that race um, between the heat and the you know, the late start and just everything, it being in LA meant I had a lot of family and friends who couldn't afford to go. So, you know, I knew a few people out there, but it just didn't have the same energy. And it was also my second time. So it wasn't quite as exciting. Um, that said, I mean, I probably the worst attitude I've ever had going into a race. I hate to say it, but um, really did. But it came out being one of the best performances I've ever had. And I think it, a lot of it comes from having trained in Texas and knowing how to run smart in heat. You know, I didn't PR, I don't think anyone did, but being able to know, take it seriously and know to back off and slow down. Um, I think I went off that first loop in probably 100th place and just before I knew it, I was passing, passing, passing and it kept happening. And 
Um, I remember on mile 24, I think, Steve, you told me I was in 30th place. And I didn't, I was like, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> I couldn't count anything by then. Um, so it was, yeah, terrible conditions. It was not pleasant, but I'm really, really proud of that race. Um, Talk a little bit about your background with running in the heat. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> not good. So I've, a few times, I mean, I ran in, I grew up in Texas. I ran in Tampa. I've lived in hot places my whole life. Um, you should have a history of passing out when it's hot. Um, it happened two or three times in cross-country races um, where I've just, totally blacked out and fell down on the middle of the course. And so I have a pretty deep set fear of the heat. Um, but I think I've realized now it's the humidity more than the heat um, because I'm realizing I can actually handle dry heat pretty well. Um, humidity is where I have problems. But that was one thing I was really worried about in L.A. because I have such a bad history with it. I get pretty negative about it and worried about it. Um, and just, yeah, passing out's not fun. I don't yeah. want that to happen again. Well, it was, uh, as your coach, uh, I would say was one of the top two or three um, coaching experiences of my life to have an athlete who I knew was going in in a very tough, challenging mental position, who still stayed the course, fought the good fight, and ended up having a great race. It's never forget mm -hmm. uh, seeing you at the finish line that was a really, or didn't see you at the finish line, actually. I think I saw you back at the hotel room. You showed we, up with a six-pack in our hotel yes, room, exactly. our Airbnb, which right. was great. <laughs> it was. It was a It was a super, it was an amazing day uh, for me as well. Yeah. It was really cool. Yeah. Really cool. I think one of the coolest things in watching you, and I've had the privilege of sharing a lot of miles with you over the last couple of years, you know, once you retired, so to speak, retired from Rogue AC and, and sort of the official elite level group, you've actually seen significant improvement at all mm -hmm. levels. You've had 10K PRs, you've had half marathon PRs, significant ones, and you've had marathon PRs. You finished 23rd at the trials, which, you know, 23rd in the country is pretty... 22nd. Pretty, 22nd, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so that's pretty darn good. So you've continued to see success even after sort of officially taking that elite moniker and maybe putting it to the side. What do you attribute to that? Um, it's a few things. I think a lot of it's just longevity and consistency. I mean, at this point, I've been running pretty much daily for 17 years, and I've been running at a pretty high level, like 100-mile-a-week type stuff, for almost seven years now. So a lot of that's just accumulated miles and strength and experience because you're going to learn something every training cycle, every time you race. Um, I've learned how to really, really listen to how I'm feeling and uh, make adjustments based on that. I've learned how to override that voice in my head that says, oh, just go do whatever's on the schedule. I'm really, really good now at making decisions based on how I'm feeling. Um, so that's part of it. But, you know, some of it, I think when I was on the team with as many great resources as we had, um, to me, a lot of the times it felt more like extra obligations. It was just meetings I had to be at, times I had to be places, all of that. And with doing that, with holding a full-time job and coaching, and I was just, every minute of my day was so structured. Um, I just think I was more run down than anything else. Um, so I think now where I've shifted, you know, it hasn't changed my level of intensity. I have the same coach. Um, if anything, I run more. But I'm able to dictate my schedule a lot more now, and I'm able to kind of rearrange it as needed around training, um, which I think has been big. In some ways, to me, outside looking in, you also seem to be enjoying it more. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's a huge part of it. And that also has a lot to do with rogue expeditions and the amount of travel I'm doing now. Because I probably spend half to three quarters of my year moving around and really not having a ton of control over where I'm running or what the terrain's like or anything like that. 
Um, and I really enjoyed it. Change. I'm naturally very routine focused, and I think this has forced me to break out of that a bit, which has been really healthy for me. If I'm here 365 days a year, I'm going to run exactly what's on the schedule. Same thing, week in, week out. I'm eventually going to get hurt or I'm going to get burnt out. Um, but right now, I'm forced to change it up constantly, and I've got forced days off when I'm traveling. I do a lot of trail running. Um, but when I do come back and have you know, a month, two months, three months here in Austin, I get super excited about hitting the roads again and getting very structured and working very hard. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's the important thing. If you're not excited about it, if your head's not in it, you're not going to do anything. That's such an important piece. It's interesting that six months out of your year now, essentially you're traveling with road expeditions. So you're really just focused on mileage Mm-hmm. And connecting back to our first podcast where we talked about the Lydiard principles of miles make champions, mm-hmm. you're basically spending six months, the, six months out of the year without formally structured workouts, right. just putting in the miles. And that's all re- effort based training and all of that is effort based because right. we write you some basic general workouts, but they very rarely get done. I never do them. You no. usually just not when I'm not hill. when I'm working. <laughs> you usually just look. It seems to me like you just point your feet uphill. <laughs> yeah. And that's a lot of it. I mean, I've trained in Texas my whole life, but all these places we go are mountainous. So I'm spending a lot of my year now at altitude and with no choice but to run up a mountain or whatever it is. So it's constant strength training, um, however it is. And I just think my base is my baseline has gotten better and better each year. And I think I just I don't need quite so much sharpening now. I can come back and have eight, 10 weeks and get ready for a marathon. Um, and I'm excited about it. And that's what matters. So that's a good segue into talking about Rogue Expeditions. Tell us about Rogue Expeditions. How did it start? What does it look like now? What's your role? Yeah. So Rogue Expeditions is our running travel adventure company. Uh, we basically guide running trips all over the world. Right now we go to Morocco, Patagonia, Kenya, Slovenia, and Croatia. And then here in the U.S. we have trips in Tahoe and Bend. Um, it was never really a plan. Uh, my now fiance Gabe and I were in Morocco in 2012. That was a trip we took after the Olympic trials just for ourselves. I'm still not quite sure how we ended up there. Um, I actually didn't run at all during that two weeks in Morocco because I didn't know that was safe or normal or what I could do. So I didn't run at all. We just traveled, um, did our thing. And somewhere towards the end of that trip, we ended up meeting a guide who we hired to take us into the Sahara. Um, and it was just kind of one of those you know, sometimes you meet people and you just, you feel good about them right away. Um, he was kind of one of those guys and we were sitting in the Sahara and under the stars around the campfire and just asking him about his other trips. And I mentioned, you know, that it looked like there'd be so many cool places to go running. I was like, do people go running here? He's like, oh yeah, yeah. He's like, sometimes I've had clients that want to go running. And so I drive the car and give them water. I was like, really? That's interesting. Um, so we kind of had this crazy idea of, I was coaching at Rogue. I had access to a lot of runners. And I was like, I bet I could get 10 people come back to Morocco and do this running trip. Um, and it was not a business idea. It was going to be a one-off, just fun thing. And came back, talked to Ruth, one of the owners at Rogue. And she said, go for it, see what happens. So we just threw something out in an email, had 22 people sign up for it in the first day. Um, it was a little scary. <laughs> and uh, anyway, all came together. We planned it without really knowing what we were doing that first time. Uh, but it was amazing. And everybody on that trip was like, well, where are we going next? We we're like, well, we're not a travel company. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> um, and, you know, someone on that group introduced us to the guy we work with in Kenya now. And it's all sort of evolved very organically. Um, but after about... The next year, we did it. We basically did two trips that year, um, that Morocco trip and one in Tahoe. And I think we did six the next year. Kind of hit a point. Gabe was in commercial construction at that point, and he had used up all his vacation plus his sabbatical, 
plus everything else. And we were kind of at that point where we either were going to do this or not do it. So we took the plunge and he left his job and um, going into our fourth year now. And we'll be at 15 or 17 trips this year. Um, it's been absolutely awesome. We get to go to some amazing places and we get to show people around. And I think the more I go to a certain place, the better it gets because the better I get to know it. And it never gets old, you know, showing people around these cool places. And, you know, people can run three miles, they can run 20 miles, they can do whatever they want. And we're going to feed them and take them around and show them a super, super cool experience that you can't really get otherwise. So uh, one of the things that I've known about you for a long, long time um, is that you've always been a traveler. Um, and uh, you and Gabe met traveling, is that correct? No, we met in Austin, but on our first date, we realized that we both had plans to move to Thailand the next year. Um, and it just sort of happened that we, well, he followed me, but we ended up <laughs> after, I think, four months of dating, essentially moving to Thailand together. Um, and then, yeah, our life has kind of been like that ever since. But what does traveling mean to you? I mean, what, what that, there's a lot of people who, who don't know what it is to be a traveler. Can you explain yeah. that a little bit? Yeah. Um, it's not, for me, it's not a vacation thing. It's a, I think it's more of a learning and a moving thing. Um, I think I tend, Gabe and I both tend to get bored pretty easily or antsy. We've always got to have something coming up. And I think with traveling, there's just so much out there. And there's always, the more you travel, the longer your list gets. Um, I actually didn't grow up traveling. I never left Texas until, other than New Mexico, until I was 16 and went to Tampa that time. Um, never left the country until, I guess when I was a sophomore in college, I had a friend living in Germany. So that was my first time to go anywhere. I never even went on a plane until I was 16. Um, so I did not grow up doing anything, but I guess that was in me and um, sparked it. So, um, you know, I backpacked Europe. I graduated early so that I could backpack Europe, did that, and that just sort of launched everything. Um, I think I like being forced out of my comfort zone a bit because it's something you're not going to do otherwise going somewhere to where you don't quite know how to talk to people or how to get somewhere and just kind of figuring that stuff out. Um, moving to Thailand, I went there to teach English mainly because I was injured in an office job and going crazy and I was 23. So <laughs> I left um, and that was, you know, really definitive part of my life. Um, it was an amazing year. Learned a lot. It's just encountering people from all over the world. I think it's so important to go around and realize that people are people everywhere you go. Um, world's a beautiful place. It's so easy to sit in your house and watch the news and think it's a terrible place, but it's really not. It's amazing. I've met amazing people everywhere. Um, I love food. I love being outside. There's just It's just sensory overload all the time, and I think that's I get kind of hooked on that. I think anybody can go to the Rogue Expeditions website and just see exactly how beautiful the world really is out there. Yeah. You yeah. guys do a fantastic job of 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 highlighting um, the beauty and the experience that people get to go through. Yeah, we don't want to put people on a tour bus. It's not a bubble thing. We want you to really experience a place, and we're going to make you get out of your comfort zone a little bit. But running such a cool way to do that. And I realize that people run all over the world. People get that all over the world. And it's really cool. You can be in the most remote village in Morocco, and you're going to get a whole bunch of little kids are going to come out, and they're going to run four miles with you. It's what they do, and um, it's just—it's a cool way to connect people. So you and Gabe had specific. Gabe had some specific experiences that made going into this line of work success, where he had some specific 
strengths that he mm-hmm. gained through high college and then you and your experiences at, at Rogue. Talk a little bit about how you were set, both of you were kind of set up for this to be an optimal and ideal scenario. Yeah, I think I mean, we're the perfect balance to cover pretty much everything that needs to happen um, for this business. So he did a lot of guiding. You know, he grew up um, camping and caving and all this kind of stuff. College, he worked with outdoor school at A&M. So he has a lot of experience guiding. Um, he's led trips down in Mexico, kayaking, climbing, all that kind of thing, that kind of stuff. Um, and of course, I have the running background and I've done coaching and event planning and that kind of thing. Um, so that alone, I mean, that's pretty much the foundation for this company. But even on a different level, I mean, his basically being project management and construction, he's really good at the dealing with people, the contracts and the bookings and getting this done and that done. Um, my background's graphic design, which is super handy when you're starting a business. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of things you can do for yourself. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're at a point we are needing help and we can't handle it all now because it's growing really well. Um, but yeah, our skill sets are very, very well matched to cover pretty much everything we need to, to do. So you've had various roles at Rogue, as I mentioned at the beginning, and now Rogue Expeditions being the, just the latest. How do you balance having a full-time job and continuing to compete at a high level? Because at this point, you've done it now for quite a long time, yeah. and you're continuing to improve. So what is that for you? How does it work? Um, you know, early on, I don't think I balanced it very well. I think I mentioned that earlier. I would definitely hit burnout point. I think Steve, you had to talk me off the cliff a few times (laughs) when I first started marathon training. Um, Part of it's personality. I mean, I've done this to myself my entire life. Like I said, in school, I was working two jobs and taking 20 hours and running competitively and just, I would just go super hard all the time. Uh, My dad's the same way, so I blame him for this. Um, So part of it's personality and I'm, it's just kind of how I function is with a little too much on my plate. Um, But I have learned how to balance it a lot better and avoid hitting that kind of burnout. Um, a lot of this, I think, has happened as Rogue Expeditions has happened, and I'm making my own schedule now. So although I'm still working a lot, I can rearrange my day. I mean, there's times I'm answering emails at 10 p.m., but I might be able to take a nap at 1 p.m. Um, so I'm able to kind of make it all fit together a lot better, which is which is key. Um, I mean, there's a lot of time management for sure, but I've always been pretty good at that. Um, there's a lot of planning. There's a lot of cooking a bunch of food on Sunday and getting ready, you know, trying to organize everything. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of it's just having that flexibility, um, with work and life and, you know, and because my job with expeditions and rogue running, it's all running focused. So I'm lucky enough to stay in that world all the time. It's a very blurry line between what's work and what's training and what's just life. Um, but ultimately I really, really care about all of it and love it. And that's, you know, it makes it easy to do. There's not really a question. I never feel like I'm going to work. It's this, yeah. project that will never end that I really you, care about. You've also, not recently, but dealt with significant time away from running due mm-hmm. to injury, yep. stress fractures and things like that that have taken significant time. How have you figured out that process of staying healthy? Because we all deal with yeah injuries big and small. Um, I basically just learned the really, really hard way. I mean, high school, I had a couple, I think I had a stress fracture too. I've never been too injury prone, but I did have that pelvic fracture when I first moved to Austin. Um, that put me out for a full year and that was my own doing, um, because I went to the doctor, they got an MRI, they said stress fracture. I said, okay, so I'll stay, I won't put in, I'll do no impact. So I immediately got in the pool and started aqua jogging two hours a day and riding a bike and 
doing all these things that still aggravated it a lot, you know, and eight weeks later, get another MRI and they're like, well, it didn't heal. It's actually worse. And so I was like, well, then I'm just going to aqua jog more. And in retrospect, it was the stupidest thing to do. But I kept doing that. And after six months and had not healed at all, finally realized, actually finally went to a doctor. It was like, look, you need to do nothing for a bit. Um, ultimately, I was away for a year um, because of that. Um, a couple of years later, I had been healthy. And this is right before um, what was supposed to be my first marathon. And I think I was two weeks out and did a workout. And I was like, oh, I feel this pain. This feels really similar. It's on the other side. Um, and I think, Steve, you were, told me it was all in my head. And I was just <laughs> nervous about the race. I was like, I don't know. This is a really distinct, really painful kind of pain. So I had an MRI done. Um, had caught it before it broke, so it was kind of a stress reaction at that point. Uh, but it was told no uncertain terms, do not run a marathon, do not even go running. And so that time I did what I always swore I do, which is I put myself on crutches and did nothing for two weeks, totally off it. And ultimately I was back in five or six weeks, so it wasn't such a big deal. Um, I think a lot of that came, I think that initial fracture probably resulted from having my first desk job. And just, I mean, I never sat for eight hours a day before. And I think it's terrible for you. Um, but I think doing that and I was doing workouts after work and um, had some alignment issues. So a lot of it was just learning to see when things are coming. And I think I've, I realized a lot of my issues were coming from back alignment, hip alignment type stuff. And so chiro work was really beneficial for me. But just learning how to know when something was off and taking care of it right there. Um, because I really... Other than some tendonitis after Leadville, and that was clear what I did to myself. Um, that wasn't, you know, it was an obvious traumatic <laughs> event. Um, other than that, I've been healthy ever since I started running 100-mile weeks. Um, I don't schedule days off, but I'm very good at knowing when I need them. So sometimes I might go a month without a day off. Sometimes I'll take two or three days off in one week. Um, it all comes down to when I'm feeling banged up and um, just kind of taking that time. But so much of it's paying attention, not getting too hooked onto what does your schedule say? What does the plan say? Because if you're hurt, it doesn't matter. You're not going to make it. Um, I think health is everything. So learn to prioritize that. So many of our listeners have no idea what it means to be a sponsored athlete. Mm -hmm. But you're sponsored by Skechers, yep. correct? Yes. Um, so give people a little bit of an idea what, what, what that means and what life is like in that sort of scenario. Yeah, it's um basically it just enables me to go race and you know kind of not have to put my own resources into it, which is great. Um, I've always run competitively, so for me, running has never been something sounds terrible that I've paid to go do. It's something that I've tried to get a college scholarship for, tried to make money at, or whatever it is. Um, but it's never been something that I go pay for and and do. So um, like with Skechers, it's great. I mean they. I'm covered on shoes, I'm covered on clothing, um, and I've got some travel money from them. So that enables me to go to some races that otherwise I wouldn't pay for because by the time, you know, you're paying, I, I can get race entries free, but by the time you pay for flight and hotel and all that, it's an expensive thing, which for someone, you know, I'm at a level where I've, I mean, I've never made more prize money than maybe $1,000 in a race, which is great. But if you spend all of that going to the race, it's kind of a zero sum thing. So, um, in that way, it's been very, very nice. Um, but then Skechers, you know, they're really good at, I feel like they really care. There's a lot of personal communication. We have straight access to the guys in charge. Pretty much whatever you need, they make it happen. And they're pretty good. Like they email every week with 
you know, what everyone who's a sponsored athlete, what have they done highlighting people. So you really kind of feel connected to all these other athletes around the country, um, which is really cool. It keeps you excited about it. It makes you proud to wear their brand. Um, I think they're one of the few brands that have been taking people on and really um, putting resources into developing people, um, which has been great. And for those that hear Skechers and running shoes and think, huh, then mm-hmm. Allison can attest and we can attest because we have their shoes in our store that they are making some legitimate stuff. They are. They're yes. sponsoring Meb and Kara Goucher as well. So they're doing some big things in our sport. So check them out. And thank you, Skechers, for supporting Allison. Uh, all right. Some rapid fire questions and then we'll wrap it up. Cool. Allison, a couple of quick ones here. So favorite race? Vancouver. Half. Okay, so favorite. Vancouver half. Yes. That's the, the May BMO. Yep, yep. Vancouver race. Yep. All right, favorite trail? Favorite trail, there's a trail on the High Atlas Mountains in Morocco that we use for our endurance adventure. Um, it's not on any map. It's just a mule trail. It's 30 miles long, and it's the happiest place on earth. And if you want to check that out, you could go on the Adir- endurance, it's endurance adventure, adventure <laughs> which is in the spring. Or just check out our photos if you don't want so to do it. So check out Rogue Expeditions to see that i think i remember when when gabe was scouting that trail on google mm. earth yep <laughs> so it's something that you can only find by looking on google earth all right favorite post long run food any kind of thai food really in the morning oh, yeah. so oh, after yeah. a so after yeah a long so run? actually my favorite is called pad caprao it's basically the stir-fried basil and meat so when we lived there we took a lot of cooking classes so i can make any kind of Thai food. And it's actually very quick and easy. Um, I can attest to that. She makes amazing Thai yeah. food. But you put a fried egg on top and then it's breakfast. And um, yeah. All right. Sure. So 10 a.m. Thai food. There you go. Or 8 a.m. Whatever. Po- post 20 miler. Favorite shoe? Favorite shoes. Skechers Go Run. It's um it's a good training shoe, um, which is what it's intended to be. But I've actually ran my half and full marathon PR in that shoe. Um, so it's, um, it's lightweight. It's a good everyday shoe, but it's also super light and i've i think it's pretty fast very cool favorite rogue route for the rogues out there south austin ramble just because <laughs> wow. i live south and i don't know i'm just creature of habit i like the roads that i know it's one of those uphill both way routes <laughs> all right now favorite rogue expeditions destination that's uh, a hard one because they're all super different but i mean morocco's the baby it was the first one so when i know the most um so that'll always have a very special place but they all they're all very very different um, All right, Morocco, check it out. Well, thank you, Allison, for joining us. For those that are rogues that know you, hopefully they know you a little bit better now. And for those that aren't rogues who are listening in, hopefully you learned something and hopefully you were introduced to an athlete that you can now follow and be a fan of. There is nobody that works harder, as as I personally can attest. So thanks, Allison, uh, thank for you. joining us and for being who you are. It's It's highly inspirational for me as a person to see what you do and so thanks for that oh thanks for having me awesome all right steve for final segment we're going training tip last week we talked about pace work in long runs what are we talking about this week um we're talking about when to take a day off or what to do if when you're in your break period basically so we're, we're into the holidays right now we've got christmas coming up we've got the new year um, for many of us, we've got a long run that hits right on a Saturday, uh, but that happens to be Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. So uh, frequently people will always ask me, um, so what do I do on the holidays when I'm trying to travel and what do I do planning wise? And I always tell folks, hey, it's really simple. If you can get the run in, get the run in. If you can't get the run in, then leave it alone. 
But this is a lot like sleep. You can't make up for sleep. People try, but they never can. So what I usually tell people is if the if you want to get the most out of your running, as we talked about before, you got to do hard days, hard, easy days, easy. You also need to take your up weeks as hard up weeks and your down weeks as down weeks. I always tell people on a vacation or on a holiday, hey, that is your down week no matter what's happening. Um, and so take it easy, relax, lay back. Um, it, there's no reason to actually try to get in a 20-mile run in Cancun, Mexico. And anybody that's trying to get 20 miles in on Cancun, Mexico, in Cancun, New Mexico needs to get their head checked. <laughs> there really is no need for that, you know. So hopefully you've done some planning in advance and you've got that done. But uh, there's another thing that really irritates me, though, that people will tell me, uh, my athletes will say, well, um, because I missed my run yesterday, I'm going to go out and get my run in. I'm going to get more run in today. And uh, I have a rule. If you missed it, then you should have had a really good reason for missing it. If you, if you didn't have a really good reason for missing it, then shame on you. And you can't do anything about it, so leave it alone. So I think it's key to think and realize that you need these downtimes. You need to take these breaks. The holidays should be a time to do that. Um, but no makeup days. No makeup days. No such thing. Um, you can't make up for that. I think when you do try to make up for it, um, you're just going to put yourself in a bigger downward spiral. I had an athlete today who uh, we just had a long, tough training block at Rogue for all groups, but especially those folks getting ready for Houston, which we didn't mention that to everybody. If you do want to follow Allison, she is running the Houston Marathon um, on the uh, 13th. 15th. 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 Soon. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he, he said to me, um, this is a down week, but I, I feel like I'm not ready. I need to get another weekend. And I said, if you do that, you're gonna, not going to be able to make it to your race right. You know, you take, take advantage of the holiday, take advantage of the break, and chill out. And uh, hopefully he listens to me. You know, not everybody listens to everything I say for some reason. But. Yeah, I always tell my runners, if you're going to miss anywhere from two to five days, you can usually just pick up with your program right where you left off assuming you have no injury issue or something like that. I had the flu last week, missed five days of running. And, you know, I decided when I jump back in to ramp up a few days more gradually versus just restarting. But, but basically there's no makeup days. Cause as we talked about last podcast, every day has a purpose. And if you try to move things around without significant pre-planning, then you end up just breaking yourself because Absolutely. things get out of order. So pick up where you left off, but no makeup time. Absolutely. Those are our training tip for this week. All right. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Allison, again for joining us. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or for Rogue Expeditions, rogueexpeditions.com. That's with one E in the middle. So Rogue and Expeditions run together. Check us out on Facebook forward slash Rogue Running on Twitter and Instagram at Rogue Running. We'll see you next time for episode three. Thanks for joining us.